Chapter 7 Europe in the Middle Ages by Irina Lifford Plunkett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7 Mohammed. Christianity, first preached by humble fishermen in Palestine, had become the foundation of life in medieval Europe. Some three hundred years after Constantine the Great had made this possible, another religion, Islam, designed to be the rival of Christianity, was also born in the east in Arabia, a narrow strip of territory lying between the Red Sea and miles of uninhabitable desert. On the seacoast of Arabia were some harbors, inland a few fertile oases where towns of low, white stone houses and mud hovels had sprung into being. But from the very nature of the soil and climate, the Arabs were not drawn to manufacture goods or grow corn. Instead, they preferred a wanderer's life, to tend the herds of horses or sheep that ranged the peninsula in search of water and pasturage, or, if more adventurous, to guard the caravans of camels that carried the silks and spices of India to Mediterranean seaports. These caravans had their regular routes, and every merchant a band of armed men to protect his goods and drive off robbers along the way. Only in the sacred months, the time of the sowing of seeds in the spring and at the autumn harvest, were such convoys of goods safe from attack. For then, and then only, every Arab believed, according to the traditions of his forefathers, that peace was a duty, and that a curse would fall on him who dared to break it. The Arab, like all Orientals, was superstitious. He worshipped Allah, the all-supreme God, but he accepted also a variety of other gods, heavenly bodies, spirits, devils, stones, and idols. One of the most famous Arabian sanctuaries was a temple at Mecca called the Kaaba, where a black stone had been built into the wall that pilgrims would come from long distances to kiss and worship. Amongst the youths of the town who saw the ceremony, and himself took part in the religious processions, was an orphan lad, Muhammad, 576 to 632, brought up in the house of his uncle Abu Talib. Muhammad was handsome and strong. He had looked after sheep on the edge of the desert, taken part in tribal fights, and from the age of twelve wandered with caravans as far as the seacoast. What distinguished him from his companions was not his education, nor any special skill as a warrior, but his quickness of observation, his tenacious memory, and his gift for bending others to his will. Unable to read, he could only gain knowledge by word of mouth, and wherever he went, amongst the colonies of the Jews who were the chief manufacturers in the towns, or lying beside the campfires of the caravans at night, he would keep his ears open and store up in his mind all the tales that he heard. In this way, he learned of the Jewish religion and a garbled version of Christianity. Soon he knew the stories of Joseph and of Abraham and some of the sayings of Christ, and the more he thought over them, the more he grew to hate the idol worship of the Arabs around him. When he was twenty-five, Muhammad married a rich widow, Kadijah, whose caravan he had successfully steered across the desert, and in this way he became a man of independent means, possessing camels and horses of his own. Kadijah was some years older than Muhammad, but she was a very good wife to him, and brought him not only a fortune, 
but a trust and a belief in his mission that he was to need sorely in the coming years. To her he confided his hatred of idol worship, and also to Abu Bakr, the wealthy son of a cloth merchant of Mecca, who had fallen under his influence. Muhammad declared that God, and later the angel Gabriel, had appeared to him in visions and had given him messages condemning the superstitions of the Arabs. There is but one God, Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. This was the chief message, received at first with contempt, but destined to be carried triumphant in the centuries to come, right to the Pyrenees and the gates of Vienna. The visions or trances during which Muhammad received his messages, afterwards collected in the sacred book, the Koran, are thought by many to have been epileptic fits. His face would turn livid, and he would cover himself with a blanket, emerging at last exhausted to deliver some command or exhortation. Later, it would seem that he could produce this state of insensibility at will and without much effort, whenever questions were asked, indeed, in answering which he required divine guidance. Much of the teaching in the Koran was based, like Judaism or Christianity, on far higher ideals than the fetish worship of the Arabs. It emphasized such things as the duty of almsgiving, the discipline that comes of fasting, the necessity of personal cleanliness, while it forbade the use of wine, declaring drunkenness a crime. With regard to the position of women, the Koran would show nothing of the chivalry that was to develop in Christendom through the respect felt by Christians for the mother of Christ and for the many women martyrs and saints who suffered during the early persecutions. Moslems were allowed by the Koran to have four wives. Muhammad permitted himself ten. And those might be divorced at their husband's pleasure without any corresponding right on their part. On the other hand, the power of holding property before denied was now secured to women, and the murder of female children that had been a practice in the peninsula was sternly abolished. As the years passed, more and more surahs or chapters were added to the Koran, but at first the Prophet's messages were few and appealed only to the poor and humble. When the Meccans, told by Abu Bakr that Muhammad was a prophet, came to demand a miracle as proof, he declared that there could be no greater miracle than the words he uttered. But this, to the prosperous merchants, seemed merely crazy nonsense. When he went farther, and, acting on what he declared was Allah's revelation, destroyed some of the local idols, contempt changed to anger. For the inhabitants argued that if the Kaaba ceased to be a sanctuary, their trade with the pilgrims who usually came to Mecca would cease. For more than eight years, while a prophet maintained his unpopular mission, his poorer followers were stoned and beaten, and he himself shunned. Perhaps it seems odd that in such a barbarous community he was not killed. But, though Arabia possessed no government in any modern sense, yet a system of tribal laws existed that went far towards preventing promiscuous murder. Each man of any importance belonged to a tribe that he was bound to support with his sword, and that in turn was responsible for his life. If he were slain, the tribe would exact vengeance or demand blood money from the murderer. Now the head of Muhammad's tribe was Abu Talib, his uncle, and though the old man refused to accept his nephew as a prophet, he would not allow him to be molested. 
In spite of persecution, the number of believers in Muhammad's doctrines grew, and when some of those who had been driven out of the city took refuge with the Christian king of Abyssinia and were treated by him with greater kindness than the pagan Arabs, the Meccans at home became so much alarmed that they adopted a new policy of aggression. Henceforth, both Muhammad and his followers, the hated Moslems or heathen, as they were nicknamed in the Syriac tongue, were to be outlaws, and no one might trade with them or give them food. In an undisciplined community, like an Arabian town, such an order would not be strictly kept, and for three years Muhammad was able to defy the ban. But every day his position grew more precarious, and the sufferings of his followers from hunger and poverty increased. During this time, too, both Kadijah and Abu Talib died, and the prophet, almost overwhelmed with his misfortunes, was only kept from doubting his mission by the faith and loyalty of those who would not desert him. Weary of trying to convert Mecca, he sent messengers through Arabia to find if there were any tribe that would welcome a prophet, and at last he received an invitation to go to Yathrib. This was a larger town than Mecca, farther to the north, and was populated mainly by Jewish tribes who hated the Arabian idol-worshippers and welcomed the idea of a teacher whose views were based largely on Jewish traditions. In 622, therefore, Muhammad and his followers fled secretly from Mecca to Yathrib, later called Medina, or the City of the Prophet, and this date of the Hijra or flight, when the new religion broke definitely with old Arab traditions, was taken as the first year of the Moslem calendar, just as Christians reckoned their time from the birth of Christ. Here in Medina was built the first mosque, or temple of the new faith, a faith christened by its believers Islam, a word meaning surrender, for in surrender to Allah and to the will of this prophet lay the way of salvation to the Moslem garden of paradise. So beautiful to the Arab mind were the very material luxuries and pleasures with which Muhammad entranced the imagination of believers that in later years his soldiers would fling themselves recklessly against their enemy's spears in order to gain paradise the quicker. The alternative for the unbeliever was hell, the everlasting fires of the Old Testament that so terrified the minds of medieval Christians. And between paradise and hell, there was no middle way. The Jews in Medina were, like Muhammad, worshippers of one god, but they soon showed that they were not prepared to accept this wandering Arab as Jehovah's final revelation to man. They demanded miracles, sneered at the Koran, which they declared was a parody of their own scriptures, and took advantage of the poverty of the refugees to drive hard bargains with them. At length it became obvious that the Moslems must find some means of livelihood, or else Medina, like Mecca, must be left for more friendly soil. Pressed by circumstances, Muhammad evolved a policy that was destined to overthrow the tribal system of government in Arabia. Mention has already been made of the caravans of camels that journeyed regularly from south to north of the peninsula, bearing merchandise. Many of these caravans were owned by wealthy Meccans, whose chief trade route passed quite close by the town of Medina, and they were protected and guarded by members of the tribe of Abu Talib and of other families whose relations were serving with the Prophet. At first, when Muhammad commanded that these caravans should be attacked and looted, 
his followers looked aghast for the sacredness of the tribes from attack by kinsmen was a tradition they had inherited for generations their prophet at once proved to them by a message from allah that a new relationship had been formed stronger than the ties of blood namely the bond of faith and that to the believer the unbeliever whether father or son was accursed in the same way when the first marauding expeditions were unsuccessful because the caravans attacked were too well guarded mohammed explained the way the sacred months and chose in future at that very time for his warriors to descend upon unsuspecting merchants the meccans outraged by what they somewhat naturally considered treachery soon dispatched some thousand men determined to make an end of the prophet and his followers and at Badr, not very far from the coast on the trade route between the two towns this large force encountered three hundred moslems commanded by mohammed it is difficult to gain a clear impression of the battle for romance and legend have rendered real details obscure but either by superior generalship the valor and discipline of the moslems as compared to the conduct of their forces or as was later stated through the agency of angels sent by allah from heaven the vastly more numerous meccan force was utterly put to rout moslems refer to the battle of Badr as the day of deliverance for though not long afterwards they in their turn were defeated by the meccans yet never again were they to become mere discredited refugees success pays and with the victory of Badr as a tangible miracle to satisfy would-be converts mahomet soon gained a large army of warriors whom his personality moulded into obedience to his will the jews who had mocked him had soon cause to repent for mahomet remembering their jibes and the petty persecution to which they had subjected his followers adopted a definitely hostile attitude towards them taking advantage of the reluctance with which these jews had shared in the defense of medina and in the throwing up of earthworks to protect it when the meccans came to besiege it in the year five of the new calendar mahomet as soon as the siege was raised obtained his revenge those jews of the city who still refused to recognize him as a prophet were slaughtered their wives and children sold into slavery the teaching and ritual of the koran also once carefully based on the scriptures of israel began to cast off this influence and where of old mohammed had commanded his followers to look toward jerusalem in their prayers he now bade them kneel with their faces toward mecca in this command may be seen his new policy of conciliation toward his native town for mohammed recognized that in the city of mecca lay the key to the peninsula and he was determined to establish his power there if not by force then by diplomacy after some years of negotiation he persuaded those who had driven him into exile not so much of the truth of his teaching as of the certainty that his presence would bring more pilgrims than ever before to visit the shrine of kaaba in a d six thirty he entered mecca in triumph and the worship of islam was established in the heart of arabia as a concession to the meccans divine revelation announced that the sacred black stone built into the temple wall had been hallowed by abraham and was therefore worthy of veneration instead of a general scheme of revenge only two of mohammed's enemies were put to death 
and it is well to remember that, judged by the standards of his age and race, the prophet was no lover of cruelty. In his teaching, he condemned the use of torture, and throughout his life he was nearly always ready to treat with his foes rather than slay them. Those amongst his enemies who refused him recognition as a prophet, while willing to acknowledge him as a ruler, were usually allowed to live in peace on the payment of a yearly ransom divided amongst the believers. But in cases where he had met with an obstinate refusal or persistent treachery, as from the Jews of Medina, Muhammad would put whole tribes to the sword. In 632, the prophet of Islam died, leaving a group of Arabian tribes bound far more securely together by the faith he had taught them than they could have been by the succession of any royal house. Though Muhammad is dead, yet is Muhammad's God not dead. While Muhammad was still in exile at Medina, it is evident that he already contemplated the idea of gaining the world for Islam. Let there be in you a nation summoning unto good, says the Quran, and in token of this mission the Prophet, in the years following his Arabian victories, sent letters to foreign rulers to announce his ambition. Here is one to the chief of the Copts, a Christian race living in Egypt. Quote, in the name of Allah the Merciful, from the Apostle of Allah to Chief of the Copts, peace be upon him who follows the guidance. Next I summon thee with the appeal to Islam. Become a Moslem, and thou shalt be safe. God shall give thee thy reward twofold. But if thou decline, then on thee is the guilt of the Copts. O ye people of the book, come unto an equal arrangement between us and you, that we should serve none save God, associating nothing with him, and not taking one another for lords besides God. And if ye decline, then bear witness that we are Moslems. Similar letters were sent to Chosroes, king of Persia, and to Heraclius, the Christian emperor at Constantinople. The former tore the letter in pieces contemptuously, for at that time his kingdom extended over the greater part of Asia. Jerusalem, once the pride of the Eastern Empire, had fallen into his grasp, while his armies were besieging Constantinople itself. A letter that he himself penned to the Christian emperor shows his overweening pride and the depths into which Byzantium had fallen in the public regard. Quote, Chosros, greatest of the gods and master of the whole earth, to Heraclius, his vile and insensate slave. Why do you still refuse to submit to our rule and call yourself a king? Have I not destroyed the Greeks? You say that you trust in your God. Why has he not delivered out of my hand Caesarea, Jerusalem, Alexandria? And shall I not also destroy Constantinople? But I will pardon your faults if you will submit to me, and come hither with your wife and children, and I will give you lands, vineyards, and olive groves, and look upon you with a kindly aspect. Do not deceive yourself with vain hope in that Christ, who was not even able to save himself from the Jews, who killed him by nailing him to a cross. Even if you take refuge in the depths of the sea, I shall stretch out my hand and take you, so that you shall see me whether you will or no. Christendom was fortunate in Heraclius. Instead of contemplating either despair or surrender, he called upon the church to summon all Christians to his aid, 
and by means of the gold and silver plate presented to him as a war loan by the bishops and clergy and in command of a large army of volunteers he beat back the persians from the very gates of his capital not content with a policy of defence he next invaded asia and at the battle of nineveh utterly destroyed the hosts of chosros the fallen king deposed by his subjects was forced to take refuge in the mountains and later was thrown into a dungeon where he died of cold and starvation had the reign of heraclius ended at this date it would be remembered as a glorious era in the history of constantinople but unfortunately for his fame another foe was to make much more lasting inroads on his empire already weakened by the persian occupation when the emperor six ten to six forty one like chosroes received mahomet's letter he is said to have read it with polite interest it seemed to him that this fanatic arab who hated jews as much as the christians did might turn his successful sword not only against them but against the persians in this surmise heraclius was right for under abu bakr now caliph or successor of mahomet since a prophet had left no son the moslems invaded persia unfortunately for heraclius they were equally bent on an aggressive campaign against the christian empire there is but one god allah with this test and by which they could distinguish friend from foe the arab hosts burst through the gate of syria and at yermuk encountered the imperial army sent by heraclius to oppose them the greeks fought so stubbornly that at first it seemed that their disciplined valor must win is not paradise before you are not hell and satan behind cried the arab leader to his fanatical hordes and in response to his words they rallied broke the opposing lines by the sudden ferocity of their charge and finally drove the imperial troops in headlong flight after the battle of yermuk syria fell and palestine was invaded in 637 jerusalem became a moslem town with a mosque standing where once had been the famous temple of solomon mohammed had declared jerusalem a sanctuary only second in glory to mecca and his followers with a toleration strange in that age left under christian guardianship the tomb of the holy sepulchre and other sacred sites after syria palestine after palestine egypt and the north african coastline the dying heraclius heard nothing but the bitter news of disaster and after his death the quarrels of his descendants increased the feebleness of christian resistance a spirit of unity might have carried the moslem banners to the limits of the eastern empire but in 656 the caliph othman was murdered and the civil war that ensued enabled the christian emperor constans ii to negotiate peace he had lost tripoli syria egypt and the greater part of armenia to his foes who had also succeeded in establishing a naval base in the mediterranean that threatened the islands of greece herself in the north his borders were overrun by bulgar and slav tribes while in italy the lombards maintained a perpetual struggle against his viceroy the exarch of ravenna constans himself spent six years in italy the greater part in campaigns against the lombards he even visited rome but earned hatred there as elsewhere by his ruthless pillage of the west for the benefit of the east thus the pantheon was stripped of its golden tiles to enrich constantinople 
and the churches of South Italy were robbed of their plate to pay for his wars. At last a conspiracy was formed against him, and while enjoying the baths at Syracuse, one of his servants struck him on the head with a marble soapbox and fractured his skull. Constans had been a brave and resolute emperor of considerable military ability. His son, Constantine Poganatus, or the Bearded, inherited his gifts and drove back the Mohammedans from Constantinople with so great a loss of men and prestige that the caliph promised to pay a large sum of money as tribute every year in return for peace. Constantine Poganatus died when a comparatively young man and was succeeded by his son Justinian II, a lad of seventeen, arrogant, cruel, and restless. Without any reason save ambition, he picked a quarrel with a Moslem caliph, marched a large army across his eastern border, and, when he met with defeat, proceeded in his rage to execute his generals and soldiers, declaring that they had failed him. At home, in Constantinople, his ministers tortured the inhabitants in order to extract money for his treasury, and filled the imperial dungeons with senators and men of rank suspected of disloyalty. Such a state of affairs could not last, and the emperor, who treated his friends as badly as his foes, was captured by one of his own generals, and, after having his nose cruelly slit, was exiled to the Crimea. Mutilation was supposed to be a final bar to the right of wearing the imperial crown, but Justinian II was a type of man to be ignored only when dead. After some years of brooding over his wrongs, he fled from the Crimea and took refuge with the king of the Bulgars. On his sea journey, a terrific storm arose that threatened to overwhelm both him and his crew. "'My lord,' exclaimed one of his attendants, I pray you make a vow to God that if he spare you, you will also spare your enemies. May God sink this vessel here and now, reported his master, if I spare a single one of them that falls into my hands. And the words were an ill omen for his reign that began once more in 705 when, with the aid of Bulgar troops and of treachery within the capital, Justinian II established himself once more in Constantinople. During six years, the empire suffered his tyranny anew, and those who had previously helped to dethrone him were hunted down, tortured, and put to death. Like Nero of old, he burned alive his political enemies, or he would order the nobles of his court who had offended him to be sewn up in sacks and thrown into the sea. At last, another rebellion brought a final end to his reign, and that of the house of Heraclitus, for both he and his young son were murdered, and the Eastern Empire given up to anarchy. The man who did the most to save Constantinople from the next Mohammedan invasion was one of the military governors of the emperor, called Leo the Osorian. Conscious of his own ability, he took advantage of his first successes to seize the imperial crown, and then, having heard that the Mohammedan fleet was moored off the shores of Asia Minor, he secretly sent a squadron of his own vessels that set the enemy's ships on fire. In the panic that ensued, more than half the Arabian ships were sunk. About the same time, a Mohammedan land force was also defeated by the king of the Bulgars, who had allied himself with the emperor on account of their mutual dread of an eastern invasion. The result of these combined Christian victories was that the Caliph Masalma, 
whose main forces were encamped beneath the walls of constantinople grew alarmed lest he should be cut off from support and provisions he therefore raised the siege embarking his army and what remained of his fleet and retreated to his own kingdom leaving the christian capital free from acute danger from the east for another three hundred years elsewhere the mohammedans pursued their triumphant progress with little check after the fall of carthage in six ninety seven north africa lay almost undefended before them and the half-savage tribes such as the berbers who lived on the borders of the desert welcomed the new faith with its mission of conversion by the sword and prospects of plunder it was the berbers who at the invitation according to tradition of a treacherous spanish governor count julian crossed the strait of gibraltar and descended on the plains of andalusia spain when the power of the roman empire snapped had been invaded first by vandals and then by visigoths the vandals if we have seen passed on to africa while the visigoths like the lombards in italy became converted to christianity and falling under the influence of the civilization and luxury they saw all around them gradually adapted their government laws and way of life to the system and ideals of those whom they had conquered thus their famous lex visigothorum or law of the visigoths was in reality the roman code remodeled to suit the german settlers in this new land the descendants of the once warlike teutons acquired an indifference to the art of war and when their king rodrigo had been killed at the disastrous battle of guadalete and his army overthrown they made little further resistance to the saracen hordes except in the far northern mountains of the asturias from france we have seen the mohammedans were beaten back by charles martel and here established in spain and on the borders of the eastern empire we must leave their fortunes for the time if mohammed's life is short and can be quickly told the story of how his followers attempted to establish their rule over christendom is nothing else than the history of the foreign policy of europe during medieval times End of chapter seven